Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. It's me again, Damien Barr, founder of The Literary Salon, popping up to give you another salon exclusive. This is another one of those readings that we are very excited about sharing. We've got about two or three a month uh, of these coming up for you over the next few months, so loads of reading recommendations for you. We scored a hit recently with The Lamplighters by Emma Stonex and we're back with another brilliant book that's going to be the talk of the summer. It is The Stranding by Kate Sawyer. It's got everything you want in a book. It's moving, it's atmospheric, it will stay with you long after the last page and yes, at points it is also harrowing. The Marion Keys, a very lovely guest on Big Scottish Book Club, you might have seen her on there. Marion Keys said of the book, it's gorgeous, original and captivating. Beautiful writing and characters are cared for as if they were my own family. Well, a debut author cannot hope for better than that. Here's Kate Sawyer to tell us more about the book and the extract she's prepared exclusively for the Literary Salon. That's you. Hello. I'm Kate Sawyer and I'm absolutely thrilled to be reading an extract of my debut novel, The Stranding, for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon. The Stranding is a dual timeline novel set before and after a woman survives the end of the world by hiding in the mouth of a whale. The two strands, before and after, reflect and contrast with each other throughout the book and eventually converge, creating a circular story which explores love, loss, motherhood and ultimately what it is that makes a life worth living. The first timeline, or strand, is set now, or a time close to now in the UK and follows Ruth, a woman in her late 30s, navigating life, love and a lot of issues that I think many of us will find recognisable. That strand interweaves with a second in a near future in New Zealand where Ruth, following the breakdown of her relationship, has decided to travel in order to fulfil a lifelong desire to see a whale in the wild. Instead, she finds herself on a beach with a stranded whale as the apocalypse looms. Um, that strand is multi-perspective, as Ruth is not alone on that beach, but with Nick, a stranger with whom her life is about to become inextricably linked. This reading is from the beginning of the book, the start of the New Zealand segment, or after, um, at the cusp of the end of the world, where Ruth and Nick meet for the first time with the stranded whale. Here we go, I hope you enjoy it. The skin is not blue, as she'd always imagined, but black. It's not a glossy black like hot tar, but a deep green blue black, teal almost. Like the hallway tiles in Fran's flat, she thinks. The hide of the animal looks like cracked varnished wood like an old piano, a giant grand piano from a ballroom of a wrecked ocean liner washed up on the shore. The long white underside of its belly is ridged, like bricks of pale plasticine. The shell-like white beige cream skin is flecked with grey, black, coral orange markings. Around its mouth and eyes, the same orange spreads like rust, 
clumsy makeup that has been smudged in the water. Ruth feels a pulse of awareness. She's being watched. She notices now that the creature's eye is open. Lashless and somehow familiar, the black pupil surrounded by a ring of colour, a white-yellow edging. So human. It seems to be watching. Seeing. She wants to kneel and place her hands on it in... In what? Reverence? Devotion? Worship? The urge to lay her hands on it is irresistible. She's struggling to catch her breath, her chest heaving. Her muscles are screaming, lactic acid accumulation stiffening them. Her foot turns slightly in the sand and pain shoots through her ankle. She can feel where she fell earlier. Her throat is burning, raw, her mouth dry, her thirst intense. She has not drunk enough water for days. Ruth unclips her bags and lets them drop onto the sand heavily next to the creature. She has never seen anything more beautiful. Next to where the creek pushes its way out of the rushes towards the sea, a truck is parked on the sand. The pink sky looming over the ocean is reflected in the windscreen obscuring the occupant. Nick turns off the radio and sits, watching the woman through the pink-tinted glass. Where she let the giant rucksack slide from her back, the skin on each shoulder is peeling. Too much time exposed to the sun. He leans forward against the steering wheel, watching as she bends and rifles through her bag, strewing items on the sand. She pulls out a container, a plastic box, the type you pack sarnies in with a clip-on lid. He watches as she pulls off the lid and discards it, then tips out the contents and takes off towards the sea at a run. She makes it to the water quickly. Her legs must be long, though her height is impossible to gauge. Next to the whale, everything looks small. Where has she run here from? Her clothes are visibly damp with sweat. Her hair with its inconsistent gold flecks looks wet. It is pulled to the crown of her head, several tendrils making their escape and sticking to her forehead and neck with perspiration. He watches her bend her knees with difficulty at the water's edge, dipping the container into the surf, filling it. He grasps what she is doing, attempting to ferry water to the beast that lies on its flank so unusually far inland. Definitely not a pro, then. Only an animal lover. A tourist, witnessing an ending. He watches as she runs back to the beast, salt water sloshing from the tiny container as she moves. Then, when she is level with the animal's eye, she raises her arm to throw the water at it. He notes with surprise another patch of soft brown hair like that on her head, beneath it. One of those women. He raises his eyebrows, looks at the increasingly pink sky and, inhaling deeply, gets out of the ute. Ruth stops in her tracks, her back to the sea, as she registers the man. Please, help me, 
She runs again to the sea and fills the plastic box. It is too small for the job. Maybe he has something more useful in the back of his truck. A pain slices through her abdominals as she turns to run back towards the whale. Throwing the contents over its drying flank, she stops, her breath laboured, and places her hand reassuringly on the rough skin next to the whale's eye. She whispers to it, Hold on. She raises her head to look at the man. He is leaning against the truck, his arms folded. Don't just stand there. Help. Have you got something to carry water? He is squinting, as if he can't understand what she is saying. She shakes her head, then staggering slightly, heads back to the shore to fill her makeshift bucket, running to return to the whale. Nick leans back against the bonnet of the ute, his head cocked, watching her run towards the water. He eases himself to standing and moves towards where she has strewn her belongings, watching her trying to balance the tiny pot of briny water between both hands but spilling it everywhere. Behind her, the sky burns pink, reminding him that any exchange he makes with this woman is completely pointless. So utterly, painfully pointless. That's no good, eh? She snaps round to face him. They stand eye to eye, not something he's used to, particularly from a woman. So she's tall, tall and angry. Well, have you got a bucket? An accent. He hadn't heard that before. Have you come here to help me or not? A pom. Great. The woman's breath is warm in his face. It smells slightly stale. It is some time since she last ate. Have you seen the news? He asked gently, as if approaching an angry cat. She looks at him, jutting her chin, but she doesn't answer his question. You're British, aren't you? He sees a flicker of something across her face. I'm sorry, he says. Struggling for breath, she turns again and jogs towards the sea. He looks down at her possessions lying on the sand around him. A small backpack, a net of oranges spilling out of it, the contents of a first aid kit strewn where she upturned the box she is dipping into the surf. There is a larger uptack too. The straps straining, stuffed full to bursting. Things hang from straps, a metal water canteen, a torch. A tent is strapped to one side, a bundled sleeping bag to the other, a towel wrapped in a plastic bag tied beneath it. You travelling on your own? Ruth's head flicks around to assess him, this stranger. She matches him in height and she doesn't doubt speed, but he is considerably wider than her, likely much stronger. Yes, she pauses to catch her breath, feeling as if her lungs are on fire. There is a movement in the whale, a full-body muscular heaving as it struggles to pull its flukes into the air. Then, with a crash, it slams them down against the wet sand. It is an almighty slap, like a crack of lightning. The motion sends sand particles flying high into the air and is accompanied by a heaving sigh. It hurts her heart to hear it. 
Oh no! Ruth's voice has a high-pitched edge, a betrayal of her panic. She can hear it herself. She looks to the man, imploring him for instruction. What do we do? Thanks so much for listening to that extract from The Stranding. I hope that it has piqued your interest to know more of Ruth and Nick's story, both before and after the end of the world. What would you be doing at the end of the world? Not to give any spoilers, but befriending a beached whale might not actually be the worst idea. That was Kate Sawyer reading exclusively for the Literary Salon. The Stranding is published by Coronet and available now in all good bookshops. Do yourself a favour and pick up a copy of this hot summer read at your favourite local indie or buy it from us online at bookshop.org. And if you haven't already signed up to our newsletter, why is the burning question, you can do that on our website www.theliteraryalon.co.uk. Thanks for stopping by. Happy reading.